The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. And the cancer journey is so unique for everyone, but I think the biggest unsung heroes, often the biggest unsung heroes of a cancer journey are the caregivers. I know when I was going through my treatment, and I'm super positive, we talked a couple weeks ago about toxic positivity and what that is and what that isn't. And I just tend to be a positive, optimistic person. And it's just who I am. And I don't even really know, I don't even really realize that that's what I'm doing, because it just is my being. So when I was going through my cancer treatment, chemo was something of a surprise after my surgery. And that had had some challenges, but I was sort of approaching it as a thing I needed to do to get to the other side. I was going to do a thing. It was going to be over. It was not a big deal. And in that time, um, after my first chemo treatment, um, and actually just, just around the time of my second, my grandmother passed away and she was a hundred and a half. And we fortunately were able to see her a couple weeks prior. And she and I are very, very close. So we went up to Massachusetts and I was my normal extroverted, optimistic, positive self. It was super sad that I lost my grandmother, but otherwise we were visiting and chatting and people kept going to my husband and asking how I really was. And it wasn't until my uncle, who um, was a caretaker or a caregiver for my aunt, who was in, oh, kind of close to end-stage scleroderma, where she had a lot of a lot of restrictions and a lot of disability. And he was really a primary primary caregiver to her. And he said to my husband, "How are you?" He asked about how I was later, but he first asked about how Charles was. And my husband has carried that memory with him because in that moment, he recognized a caregiver recognizing a caregiver. And it's so important to realize that our caregivers' lives just get more complicated. Like they still have their work. And whatever chores and duties and things that they were doing prior to our diagnosis, those things just get added to. And when they're at work, people may or may not know that they're doing this caregiver role. And they don't have any outward signs because they're not the ones that are going through treatment, although they really are. And my guest today is Dr. Erica Mikulski. Nailed it. <laughs> and she was a caregiver for her husband, Dan, when he was diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 28. So welcome, Erica. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and talk a little bit about this weird piece that gets overshadowed quite a bit. And I love the story that you just shared because after be becoming part of the cancer space with Dan's diagnosis, I then became the resource for a lot of people who entered this space, right? It's sort of like if you go on vacation to a place that you know someone else has been, you're like, hey, what are the highs? What are the lows? What should I do? Like, what are the best tourist attractions? So I became the what are the best tourist attractions during cancer. Um, totally different dynamic, but still remained my optimistic self. And I can tell you all about what you should do in Maui and also what you should do during cancer treatment. Um, so I'm a useful person. But when I became that person, I always asked about the caregiver and asked if they were getting what they needed um, and how they were taking care of themselves. And I have actually carried that into a lot of different areas in my personal life and professional life, because it's the same when someone is pregnant with their first child. I often say, before this baby arrives, make a list of all the things that make you feel human. 
like the most human. And this can be as simple as like taking a shower um, or going to a movie theater and sitting alone in the movie theater, whatever it is. And so I tell everyone to make this list and then to make sure every day they do something on the list. And this is the approach I take with caregivers too. Like, what are the things that make you feel human? Make a real list. Be honest with yourself. Nobody even has to see your list. Nobody has to know. But if your if your list involves just like Starbucks, and that makes you feel human, I want you to figure out how to find a way to do that every day during this treatment because you get to feel human in the ways that you need to, and no one else gets to have an opinion about that. Um, if your humanness is tied to watching garbage television do that thing. So I love that caregiver honoring caregiver thing because I we're we're our own club. And if For you sure. look at some of the other types of clubs out there, um I use I have air quotes for those of you listening, obviously all of you. Um club air quotes. But when we look at things like Al-Anon, there is a need to support the people playing a support role. And culturally we recognize this in a lot of different ways, but it sometimes gets lost in the shuffle of one person might die and one person's definitely not going to die. So we need to pour our energy to this other thing. And I was very fortunate that there were people who made sure I was capable of feeling human every day. And during Dan's, I'll share this story and then I'll tell a little bit about the whole thing. But when Dan was sick um, and in treatment, I had a colleague who at the time, and is one of my closest friends, she's the godmother of one of my children. She, I worked in healthcare. My, um, my background is in healthcare education and uh, adult learning. So I was working on a college of pharmacy campus and this individual, her name's Amy, and she would have to come to campus from her practice site. So she would often text me when she was like, Hey, I'm leaving the site, coming to campus. I need to talk to you about something, anything. I'm, I'm stopping at Jimmy John's or I'm stopping at Panera. I'm stopping at whatever. What can I grab you? It wasn't until more than halfway through, actually probably not until Dan's treatment was over where I could look back and say, oh my gosh, Amy was making sure I ate every day, at least one meal every day because our meetings were not purposeful or necessary. Like we would, (laughs) she was on a committee with me. And so she would always have a reason to talk about committee stuff or something else. Or I want to pick your brain about this thing for a class. Um, But it was 100%. She was just making sure that I ingested food and our, our meetings were never over until she watched me eat the entirety of whatever I had suggested she could bring me. So Amy watched me eat a lot of Vito sandwiches from Jimmy John's because it's my favorite thing in the name of me feeling human in that moment. And so I was very grateful that there were people that did these things that had nothing to do with Dan. And that was really powerful because at the same time, it was also raising two tiny, tiny humans. And they had, this had nothing to do with my tiny babies. And so it was like, I was allowed to exist in this space as just myself who had my own set of needs that weren't the needs of a three and a half month old and a 20 month old, which were the ages of our daughters when Dan went into emergency chemo, which is a phrase I didn't even know existed until it was a part of my life, right? I I never knew that like emergency chemo was a thing, but then I, I learned that. But it was weirdly validating. And these points of validation for me and the caregiver role along the way were probably as sustaining as feedback we were getting from Dan's medical team about his progress for me. And I don't know that I ever even told Dan how I was being supported because that wasn't a priority in our dialogue, you know, together. He didn't need to worry about that. He needed to not die. That was really, that was our goal. So um, Dan's cancer process started with a lot of Well, it started with exhaustion, which is such a really stupid symptom because like you can be exhausted because you have a newborn. So we had a one-year-old daughter, Gretchen turned one in January. In early February, we started watching um, House of Cards, which is a show that's like really intense and you kind of have to pay attention. And Dan's exhaustion was so bad, he was falling asleep during it, which I feel like is borderline impossible if you're familiar with the show. Yeah. Yeah. and so I would be wide awake, intensely ready to watch episode two and Dan would already be asleep and we'd have to rewatch the episode we had just watched and all these things. And so I really, someday we'll go back and watch all of House of Cards because everyone thought it was so great and I wanted to see it. And I was busy dealing with this partner who was tired. 
but we had a one-year-old. So I think a lot of the world was like, well, of course you're tired. You're, you have a one-year-old. Dan did not have overnight duty because I function on less sleep. I wake up, I can hear, I could hear Gretchen. I could be awake, have her out of her crib, have her bottle ready, have her fed, burped, and back to sleep in less time than it would take me to wake Dan up to do the job. <laughs> so there was no reason for me to like pawn it off on him. But everyone just kept saying, oh, you're tired because you have a newborn and you're a PhD student. Um, and I was pregnant at the time with our second child. And there was this one time Gretchen was about, it was right before Paisley was born. So Gretchen was 16 months old. And I was pregnant with a child who would ultimately be almost 10 pounds. So not small. And, and I was all <laughs> belly. So I had this like giant belly and a 16 month old who's teething. And I was sitting on the floor of our tiny condo kitchen crying, trying to get ibuprofen in Gretchen. And Dan is exhausted and sleeping. And he'd been tired by this point for four months. And we had no idea why he was tired. And we'd altered medication that he was on thinking it was maybe that we tried all these things. And he was going to bed when our one-year-old was going to bed and waking up after she was waking up in the morning. So he was sleeping more than our one-year-old during the night. And it's scary I, how how much fatigue is an indicator and how easily it is to write it explain off. it away. Yeah, absolutely. So I was then exhausted also, but it made sense that I was exhausted. I was growing a human, caring for a human and trying really hard not to be mad at my husband. And we had only been <laughs> married for like a short, shortish period of time. So I, you know, I think that you can be newlyweds your whole life if you do it right. And for uh, sure. so this whole, this, this is the dynamic. So this is June when, when Paisley was born and Dan started experiencing some lower back pain. And it was around his kidney. So he went to a conference in August. Uh, you know, we have, we welcome this new baby. We're doing all the things. Nobody's sleeping. Everybody's just trying to exist and, and whatever. And, <laughs> um, because babies are fascinating beings that want to test your limits. And we sure. went to this conference in August and he came home from the conference and his back pain had escalated quite a bit. And he talked to his physician and his physician said, try a couple of things. You are a fitness person and, and Dan is in incredible shape and, and always has been. So maybe you just pulled something, you know, it, it was written away as muscle pain. And Dan, because he is a very fit individual and trim is also super in tune to his body. And so he's like, this doesn't feel like muscle pain, but okay. You know, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Um, fast forward. Early September, we went to a wedding and we came home and he was still in a lot of pain. And we went to the ER and Dan is six foot four and he's a molecular biologist and virologist. So he does a lot of bench work and was in his PhD program at the time. And the ER physician said, you told me you work in a lab, right? And Dan said, yeah. And he said, well, you're really tall for that kind of job. So you're probably just going to have lower back pain because you're bending over a lab all day doing your research. And they'd done a couple of assessments of his kidney, like urine analysis and looked at his kidney because that's where the pain was located and his kidneys yeah. showing up fine. Well, eventually the pain was so bad that we had to basically bully our way into getting some testing done. And at the end of September, when they finally did a real scan, they found that he had a giant tumor living in his T11 vertebrae and it was pushing up against his spinal cord and the nerve pain was radiating out over, surprise, the kidneys. Yeah. So his kidney pain was directly related to the nerve connection where his tumor was. So his primary tumor was in his T11 and the oncologist, we went to the hospital for pain management. He went in for pain management. So he was, we got the diagnosis on a Friday and um, they told him over the phone while he was driving on the interstate. Can we talk about how terrible that was? Dan found out on a phone call while he was driving. For starters, unacceptable. And you haven't shared this, but shortly or around the time you started dating, he had lost his dad to the exact same type of lymphoma. So any kind of blood cancer diagnosis was going to be extremely triggering 
Correct. Because yeah. of that history, like how we react is so much about our experience. Correct. And our contextual awareness of what, right. we're, what we're now navigating. Yes, 100%. So, so he called me and I, I had said earlier, so one of my good friends is an oncology pharmacist at work. Again, working at a school of pharmacy, I was very fortunate to be surrounded by well-educated, kind healthcare people because any questions I had, I had like actual friends, not healthcare. And I love healthcare providers. I was an associate dean of students for a college of nursing. I ran a department at a college of pharmacy. I did my dissertation on healthcare education. I love healthcare providers. But there is something different about someone sitting on your couch talking to you about things because you are afraid to ask questions in other spaces. Absolutely. And they're not on a clock. Right. Right. They don't have to bill for it. Too often they're on a clock. Right. So I had seen Janelle is my oncologist pharmacist friend. And I'd seen her earlier that same day. And we were waiting. Dan had had the um, bone scan and some other things done. We were waiting on some stuff. And I said this thing. And I think that we all have these moments where we say a thing. We don't realize the magnitude of what we're saying. But I knew. I knew before Dan called me, I knew. And so I saw Janelle in the hall and she said, are you okay? And I said, I have this feeling I'm going to need a lot of help from you soon. And I said it in this very like flippant, but real way. And she said, what's going on? So I told her what was going on. And of course, like everyone, their response is, well, we don't need to worry about that till we have more information. But I knew, I knew this was happening. I just yeah. knew this was happening. So Janelle's office is actually where I was when I got the phone call (laughs) from Dan and I hit the floor and Janelle and her office mate and Amy, the woman I referenced earlier who made sure I had food. The three of them made sure I got home. One of them drove me. Someone else drove my car um, to get me home uh, that day. And the next day, those, that collection of people, we had all planned to go apple picking with our children and, and as friends. Some of them had children, some of them didn't, but we all just went to go do apple picking because it's the Midwest. We lived in St. Louis and in Illinois, there's this great place where you go do the thing, right? Yeah. And um, my husband's from not very far from there. Oh, okay. So in Illinois. Oh, perfect. (laughs) So apple picking, it's a thing. It was late September. This is what you do. So I load up my babies. We go apple picking to get to apple picking. Let me clarify. This was the worst idea any of us had. And none of us thought it through because we were all trying to pretend like life was normal. Because when Dan got the call, they said, we're going to schedule a follow-up appointment with you like later next week. And so we go to apple picking. And when you go apple picking, the first thing you do is you get on a hayride and you drive into a field on the least smooth possible. So literally, we're bouncing around. Every child on this thing is loving their life. And my husband with a tumor in his spine is trying not to throw up. All of us looked at each other in this moment and we were like, we're the worst people because we just wanted life to be normal for like one more day. Uh, and we did a terrible job. So these folks are all in healthcare and in the pharmacy space. And they were like, Dan, you need to get to a hospital because this the, the, you're not going to be able to control this pain. Like, We need to get you somewhere where they can help you in a, in a, in a more effective way than like ibuprofen. <laughs> so Dan said, I just want one more night at home because I feel like once this starts, it's going to be a lot. So Saturday night, he stayed at home. We arranged for childcare for the entirety of Sunday. And I took him to the hospital and he was admitted and met with an oncologist while he was in the hospital. And the oncologist different than the oncologist who had done the reading, um, cause we were in a different facility. That oncologist said, I don't know what your plans were for tomorrow, but they're chemo because your body is full of cancer. Your torso has been taken over by cancer. And he looked at me and he said, you have small children, right? I said, yes. And he said, are you prepared to be a single parent? And with some colorful language, I said, if you do your job, we won't have to worry about that. And that was how it all started. And the next, and he said, the only reason I'm letting you go home is so you can see your kids before you start. And because I know you'll come back tomorrow. 
so he'd been in the hospital for a couple of days for pain management. And then um, he got to go home before starting treatment. And so that's how it started. And we got there on the first day and everything was different. Everything was terrifying, but we were terrified in ourselves at the same time. We were wearing science clothing. I made theme out of our outfits. My children had on science clothing. I had on Tom's that have the periodic table. Like we scienced the heck out of that day. And at the time, I, another friend of mine, when I was, I, so the place where Dan got treatment was walking distance from my job. So my car, I would park at my office to go take him to treatment. stuff. So it was really, I was very fortunate that some of the things that are the biggest hassle were not present for me. So I want to own that I was very fortunate in a lot of ways that I didn't even recognize and appreciate at the time were so useful, but I didn't have to deal with parking in the parking garage. I didn't have to deal with any of that. I just went to my, um, you can maintain some sense of normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went to my office one time, the first time we were, it was going to be a long day. So I walked back to campus and went to the campus library and got a DVD so we could watch a movie, you know, like we, it was really random and, and very fortunate to be able to do that. But, and, and colleagues of ours would like come hang out at chemo, which is a weird thing. And now I think of like COVID life and how that wouldn't be possible at all. Right. But we had, we were, we were hot happening, man. We were like, we were, <laughs> because that's who we are as people and cancer didn't get to have an opinion about who we are as people. Yeah. And that's the thing that was so important to us was who we were and who we are and who we will be is the same. Yeah. Across that experience. So Dan started treatment in September. And then um, that night, or actually it was like a week later. So it took me about a week to wrap my brain around everything and tell people. A few people at work knew, obviously, because my coworkers knew. And then um they asked if they were, if it was okay. This is the other thing that was so cool. And that doesn't always happen for caregivers. I think people start to make decisions on your behalf because they think they know what will be helpful. And I respect and appreciate that, but it's really cool when they ask you first, we would like to do this thing. Is it okay? That's markedly different than we're going to do this thing and making decisions on behalf of people. So they said, we would like to do a meal train. That was one of the things we would like to do a meal train. Is that okay? Are you okay with that? It means that people will know. And I have worked in professional development. I've been giving keynotes at this point. I've been giving keynotes for a number of years and had a lot of social media friends, Facebook friends that were college students who'd heard me speak or, or what have you. So because of that, and my husband is a lot more private, it was not known in the public space and social media space that this was happening. People who knew could see, but like, I still use social media as a means of communication. Yeah. And I would post like what was going on. I would post things with the girls and people knew how we were doing. And I kept a caring bridge page that people had access to, you know, who, who were in our life and that sort of thing. But if you didn't know, we did a really good job of making sure you didn't know. And that was incredibly intentional because Dan did not, he was not a person who was ready to like wave the flag of I'm fighting cancer. He was just trying to stay alive and that's where his energy was. And it wasn't on flag waving and it wasn't on anything else. And honestly, it wasn't necessarily rooted in confidence in the beginning because of his dad's scenario. Absolutely. And, and when an oncologist says, well, we're going to blast you. We're going to do the highest toxicity the FDA will allow in the human body because of how bad it is. You don't want to wave that flag. You mostly just want to make it. And that's where your energy is. And I think that there's something exceedingly valid to processing all the things. I'm very extroverted. I'm generally what you see is what you get. But when it came to my cancer, I didn't put it on social media. Like that wasn't, I told people that I had to tell. I told people that I saw in real life. But it wasn't until much later when I had kind of processed where I was. And I think that there's a, a healthiness to that as well. So on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Erica and I are going to continue this conversation. Stay with us. 
I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again, and sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge, especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting, and make it something fun, maybe even a little social, safely, of course. The important thing is that you wanna get started and you're happy to show up for yourself and then you wanna stay in the game because it feels good to move and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a coffee chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Erica and we are talking about her journey as a caregiver and as a spouse of a cancer patient and mama of two little girls at the time. Well, still two little girls. But one of the things that you had talked about in our first segment was the doctor delivering the news in the hospital. and, And that might have sounded to listeners as somewhat harsh. And I think one of the reasons that doctors sometimes can can be direct when the situation is is dire or in any case where cancer is involved is that they want to make sure that we all know the gravity of of what we're facing. And, and his credit, I think and you've talked about this too. You are an optimist and you're an out loud extroverted optimist. I also am that. And I have earned the right by being above ground to make the jokes that I want to make. Right. <laughs> I've, had enough, I've had enough trauma in my life that I have earned the right to make the jokes that I want to make because I, I want to. And, and I, let's be very clear, listeners, please don't come for me and tell me that you can't earn that right in your jokes. I don't say offensive jokes. I just make dark jokes, which is very different. I have a shirt that says, of course, they're fake. The real ones tried to kill me. Oh, yeah. So you get it. Right. Yes. I totally yes. get it. <laughs> yes. Um, and, so- and yes, listeners, I get it. The surgery that I had is not a boob job. Right. I get that too. But right. it also kind of is. So, I mean, yeah. So, <laughs> so I think because by that point, Dan had been in the hospital this oncologist had been in and out with us. Other people had seen us and, and we were constantly laughing. Dan and I have a <laughs> stupid amount of love for each other that is like permeates in all directions when we're together, when we're not together, when we're, when we're doing nothing in the middle of this recording, I just got a message from him because I have it in sleep mode, but he doesn't, he's on the, like, you can interrupt sleep mode because, um, like, what if there's an emergency or if I'm on the road and traveling and he needs to get hold of me. So, he, you know, you can set your phone so that some people overpower sleep mode. So Dan overpowers sleep mode. And I got a message from them. It's like, hey, I just want you to know I love you and I love us. Like, that's who we are as people. And we've always been that. So we were that in cancer. We were that in everything. We were that when our baby was in the, you know, hospital as a three-month-old. Like, we we're just those people. So I am I'm certain that to some degree, the oncologist was like, these two dopes are not taking this. <laughs> and, and I think it's because when Dan and I chose to have hard and heavy conversations, we were very intentional about where we were in our mindset. And if we were both capable at that time of having those conversations, we did have hard conversations. I cried a lot. I cried the entire time Dan was in the hospital and I was home alone. Um, and, and I didn't really sleep. And it was terrible. And I probably at some point should not have been allowed to drive a car. But like when you're emotionally exhausted, one of the cool things that happens is all the emotions are on their extreme. So that sucks when it comes to hard emotions and heavy emotions and the crying and the hyperventilating and all that stuff. But when you laugh and you're so tired, you don't have the ability to control or filter or like rein in the laughter. It is loud. I am loud anyway. (laughs) So like when, and Dan has allowed us. So when we were, I, I'm certain the oncologist probably heard us down the hallway and thought these buffoons are having 
they are oblivious or they're in denial or whatever. We were not in denial. We were just choosing to live our life anyway. Right. So, I mean, I cried. So I, I cried laughing on the way to the hospital. I dropped the girls off at childcare. We had this in-home provider who was amazing and probably part of how I kept it together. Cause she let me bring the girls a little extra early on chemo days so that I could drop them off and like get to where Dan needed to be, because there's so many pieces that have to happen. You have to have the blood work and you have to do this and you have to do that. And she was like, just go do what you need to do. And if you're going to be late, it's okay. Like Wednesday nights, if they have to eat dinner here, it's fine. So she was amazing, but I stopped. Dan was in the hospital. I dropped the girls off. We hadn't started chemo yet, but we knew it was really bad. And I stopped at McDonald's to get iced coffee, the largest iced coffees that they would sell me. And I got two of them and they're in a like cardboard holder. And I went to put it on the floor and they spilled forward. And I shouted a curse word. And the young woman who was working at the drive-through window, um, this McDonald's that was by our house did a really, does a really, we don't live there anymore, but they, last I knew we're still doing this, does a really great job of working with um, folks who have developmental disabilities and, and employing them. So the young woman who was working the drive-through window, I don't know this officially, but had the visual markers and some of the speech patterns of an individual with Down syndrome. And so if you are familiar with people with Down syndrome, I've worked in special needs spaces a lot. They know like bad words are funny. Like they know certain things are funny. And she was adultish age. So she was aware that I had said this thing. And this woman started laughing. And it was like this breath of permission for me to also laugh. And I was laughing so hard. I was crying and I thought I was going to have to pull over because (laughs) it was so funny that she thought this word was so funny because in her life, she knew this word was a word that was inappropriate. And when you use this inappropriate word, it was funny. And I could have been so angry about spilled coffee, but instead like the humor poured down my face in tears. And that's how I approach everything. And I was like that before laughing to the point of crying is one of the most therapeutic things you can do. And I think people need to know listeners, if you don't take anything else from this insanity that I'm sharing with you, because I speak (laughs) in tangents, like a ping pong ball, I've cultivated this art. It's not going to change. I'm almost 38 years old. Like this is who I am. Listeners stop filtering your joy. Stop filtering and repressing the laughter that is trying so desperately to come out of your body. Give your body the physical permission to experience laughter, your whole body. Your whole body deserves to feel laughter, your toes, your fingertips, your earlobes. Stop holding in the laughter because you think social norms tell you that. I choose not to go to libraries or golf courses because you're not supposed to be loud and I'm probably going to be. So unless it's some sort of fundraiser where everyone's drinking and I can assume they're going to be loud, I don't go to those places. But the laughter piece for me was so important because that's who I am as a human. Every day above ground is a chance to laugh real hard Um, and to feel because that laughter is the feeling part, the feeling of humanness. And all of my humanness feelings had been heavy and hard. And so laughter was the greatest humanness feeling that was neither of those things. And Dan and I only watched reruns of The Office, reruns of Seinfeld and Modern Family during that time. Like we wouldn't watch TV that we hadn't already seen. And there's a thing I've seen about people who have anxiety and how they rewatch television because they don't have to worry about what's going to happen. So we sort of did that because we didn't, we were in places where we were emotionally drained or crying without our doing. So we were not going to add to that during this time. So we would, we would only laugh. That was the rule. Well, and and it's really disconcerting. Like one of the seasons of game of Thrones was on like in the middle of my chemo. And, but it seems really intense. It's super intense. And there's a specific scene where like this huge thing happens. That when we were watching the season back, like HBO was running them as a marathon before the final season started. Oh, okay. Sure. And I'm sitting there watching, like just thinking that I'm watching something I've already watched. And I'm like, I don't don't remember this. And my husband's like, how? What? 
How? Uh, what do you mean? No. This is, how do you not? I mean, literally, I mean, it was a huge thing. And I had no memory. And I started Googling for the episode. And oh I was God. like, oh, that was in November of my treatment. Oh, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I don't. And I've come to realize that for like two years of time, I have huge gaps. Sure. Memory. Yeah. Your energy was spent remembering the things that you needed to remember. And it didn't collect some of those other things in the way that it, it would right. have otherwise. And, but and, we chemo only want- impose, and chemo imposes on that. Sure, sure. And so we only watch things that would make us laugh and we would laugh hard and loud. And Dan has what I call his Seinfeld laugh, which it turns out also transitions to Schitt's Creek and um, a few other things. But when we first started dating, that's the first time I heard it was Seinfeld. And so it's a Seinfeld laugh. And we had a very specific episode in, oh my gosh, this is, I can't believe I'm about to tell this. This is like the silliest story, but it's so useful. So (laughs) friends who are out there. If you are going through this, or if someone in your life is going through this in the caregiver role or in the treatment role, here's what I need you to understand. The things that make sense to them don't have to make sense to you. You don't have to reconcile in your own brain why they are only watching reruns at the office. Leave them alone. You don't have to reconcile in their brain why their wife planned the most ridiculous, and I'll tell you about this too, because it's one of my greatest points of pride. Um ridiculous series of things. You don't have to reconcile that in your brain because it is not yours to navigate. Yeah. What you get to do is say, how can I contribute to the things that you have found that are keeping you going? That's what you get to do. You get to say, how do I contribute to what you have mapped out as the necessary components of surviving this experience? So in the office, there is an episode Um, And I used to know the exact like season and episode. And if I thought about it hard enough, I probably could come up with it again. There's an episode where Joe Bennett comes to visit. And it's the episode where they're deciding who's going to be the office or the um, manager or whatever. Because Jim and Michael Scott had been splitting it. And one had been doing big thinking and one had been day to day or whatever. And so she said, it sounds like you have two people doing one person's job and they're trying to figure it out. So that's when they figured out that you get, you could make more money off of commission as a salesperson. So Michael decides he's going to be the salesperson and Jim decides he's going to be the boss or, and Jim gets put in the boss. And there's this scene where we can assume that, um, Phyllis is on medication that makes her have some gas. And so this scene plays out. And Michael is sitting in Jim's seat and he's like, what is that? And there's this big elaborate thing and it's hysterical. Michael goes into Jim's office and says something. And Jim says, you got to do something and, and whatever. And Jim says, the grass is always greener. And Michael goes, there's no grass out there. It's just a farty dirt patch. And when Dan and I, for the entirety of his treatment, after we watched this episode, because we rewound that moment, Farty Dirt Patch, and watched it to the point of tears for like 30 minutes. We just watched this scene. It's like three minutes of time, right? So when we were ha- when we were in a hard place, in a dark place, and both of us are not people who like to be in those places longer than necessary. It's necessary to have hard conversations. It's necessary to experience dark things to stay grounded, right? We were talking about the oncologist being really direct with us to make sure we hadn't lost sight of reality. So reality will force you into these dark places. But some people, Dan and I are are two of them, have no need to stay there longer than necessary. Some people like to hang out there longer and you kind of have to move them out of those dark spaces. We are not those people. Like as soon as I have an excuse to get out of the dark space, I am all in. So we would find... If I would find Dan having a really tough day, or if we had just finished having a hard conversation or talking about something or whatever it was, one of us would just go party dirt patch. And then we would just laugh so hard. We would cry. So if someone in your life has a thing like party dirt patch, and it makes no sense to you, you don't have to make sense of it. That's not your job. Let them have their party dirt patch and also make them a t-shirt that says party dirt patch to show them that you love them and their coping mechanisms. That's I've said the word farty more times in this conversation than maybe my whole life <laughs> other than Dan's treatment when I said it to him all the time. So for us, 
remaining our authentic selves was the most important thing. And I think that's part of Dan's desire to not become, hi, I'm Dan Mikalski, I have cancer, and then all the rest, right? That's, he didn't, he didn't want to have that become the primary defining trait. And we didn't want that to be the primary defining trait for who we were. So instead we said, how do we lean into and, and amplify the things about ourselves that we know are awesome and costumes and Halloween. We met on Halloween. There was an article that was published actually while Dana was in the middle of treatment in the Washington post about us meeting on Halloween, which was hysterical. And we, so we met on Halloween. We love costumes. I love a good theme for no reason other than because you can have one. So we started having themed chemo days and every chemo day was a theme and our kids were involved. All these things happened. And um, again, on social media, people just saw that was an arbitrary Wednesday where we all had a themed out outfit, but people who knew what was going on were like, oh, today's theme is enter this thing. So we did all this, but also the first week after Dan's treatment, because he, when he went into emergency chemo, I hadn't really told anyone yet because I didn't have time to like catch my breath. Right. But once we notified everyone, I also said, here's the deal. If you will do this one thing for me, you get a t-shirt. So I had t-shirts made that said team Danimal, because that's what my brother called Dan. And it became like this thing that, so none of his friends from college called him Danimal, but my brother called him that. And it was a thing that my, that I appreciated and whatever. So Danimal is what we picked, team Danimal. So these t-shirts made, and the only rule to get a t-shirt was on the third chemo treatment. So we had six rounds. So on the third round, which was like in theory, the halfway point, but not really, but the fourth round was past halfway. Like I just wanted it to be on the third round. You had to send a text message. And I gave people the timetable of when we would be in treatment and you could not text early. You had to send a text message. And the rule was you had to make Dan laugh out loud. That was the only rule for getting a t-shirt. Dan had to laugh out loud in treatment. So we were in his chemo pod, like losing our crap because the first text came before he actually started. And he thought the theme for that day was Boston college. And I had sent our kids to daycare in Boston college clothes. They'd slept in Boston college pajamas the night before. Cause that's where Dan went to school is Boston college. And I like to razz him about how much more I love my school than he loves his, which isn't true. We both love our schools a lot. So anyhow, I wore my Boston college t-shirt. He had his, the girls had theirs for the day, but I packed in their diaper bag, their t-shirts, which said team Dadimal. And our daycare provider knew about this and she had a team Dadimal shirt too. So like we were at child, we were at the treatment center waiting and we got our first message and it was of our children and this sign that they had made cheering for their dad. And that did not make Dan laugh. It made him cry, which was fine because that's different. But then we started getting these messages from people and we're losing it. And Dan is like, what is happening? So I get him his t-shirt. He had his own t-shirt. So we went to the bathroom and changed. And so he wore his own team Danimal shirt all day. This was Jen. I'm a strategic planner as part of my professional life and have been for a long time. This particular day, I did not bring earphones and some people sent us videos. So we became celebrities because first we were laughing really hard at pictures, but then the videos we were watching. So nurses and other people in treatment were coming over to see our videos because everyone got to laugh. Well, and you were having so much fun, right? Like people were, were like, what the hell is going on over there? We were having a great time. And we tried to always be mindful of the fact that like, and this is the tricky part about being your authentic self is I knew there were people around us who were never going to ring the bell. I knew that. And so we tried to figure out how to find the balance of not disrespecting what was happening in their life, but still not compromising who we were in our own life. And that was really tricky. but. Also, when you snort laugh, you snort laugh and there's nothing you can do about it. So we were like, (laughs) fortunately, we were like off on a side in a corner and we were trying to keep it together, but also like the staff was coming to check out and a few other people who know what's going on. So that happened because the theme was we can do this, you know, right? We, we, we're allowed to laugh at how funny the other parts of life are and, and cancer doesn't have to put the rest of life on hold. So the same people that got t-shirts were invited to this surprise party that I threw and Dan felt miserable 
after like on his treatment day. And then he had prednisone afterward, which prednisone, if you've never taken it, it's like the worst and it messes with you mentally and physically and all these things. So we had this surprise party the Saturday before his last treatment. And I started planning it the day he started treatment because I knew we were going to make it. And I knew we were going to be celebrating. I made that decision. I made that executive decision and I had zero interest in conversations that said otherwise. That was that was happening. Frankly, listeners, close your ears if you don't like bad words. That was fucking happening. And I was not interested in any alternative. That was happening. So I sent out this thing. January in St. Louis is a blizzard. People are flying in. We had to change, <laughs> we had to change the time for Dan to come home for the surprise party that's happening in our home. We had 75 people in our house waiting for Dan. And people were, like I say, people flew in. This, this, so the best part is my accomplice in this, his phone was broken and only worked in speakerphone mode. So we had to talk in code because Dan was sitting next to him <laughs> listening to all these things. And so his wife, who was another one of my best friends, is like, Scott, I need you to get paper towels or whatever. And I love Scott, but he was not connecting any of why we like, he was like kind of connecting it, but not in a way that made sense. And he was not clarifying for Dan, like, we'll just do this really quick because the storm is coming. Like, So the whole thing was very stressful. And I will guaranteed never throw another surprise party, like have zero interest in doing it because <laughs> this one I pulled off and it was amazing, but also was the most stressful thing. I mean, we had just gone through what most people would say is the most stressful thing, keeping Dan alive, chemo, all these things, right? No, this dumb party, which was so fun. <laughs> In our house, we were living in a rental house at the time and it had this upstairs loft area. So there are people lining the loft, shooting glitter cannons and confetti and noises and people from Dan's college. Like first he saw people that were local and that made sense to him. Then he right. saw people who were clearly not local, who were from other time zones. And he was like, what is happening? So it was really great because it was the weekend before treatment was always when he felt the best yeah. of, the, of the cycle of each round. So anyhow, we have this big elaborate party. Um, and everyone had to wear their shirts. That was, was part of the deal too. Like you have to come in your shirt. And if you couldn't come, you had to send pictures in your shirt, toasting to Dan. So I had this collection of pictures to show him of all these people who were just as happy as we were to celebrate this thing that, that some people tried to tell us wasn't going to happen. People who love us very much tried to, to make me overly grounded. Or to yeah. take my realistic nature to a darker place than I would say it needed to be. And that sucked a lot. And that was really frustrating and hard. Um, and if I go back and look, not a single one of those people had been intimately impacted by cancer in this way. So like yeah. they didn't know what they were doing to the degree that they were doing it because they just thought they were being helpful by like reminding me. You know, I, I said this when we were, we were off air, but I said, you know, someone asked me if we had started talking about Dan's funeral and I wanted to sucker punch him because that's a dumb, in my opinion, that was not a conversation we were having. And also to be quite honest, most people don't immediately die from, from that. So like, if, if you're right. really at a place where, where you're in the, the downhill slide towards that, that's different. You, you know that like, you don't just. Yeah. So it's a different place to be in the active fight versus the you've gone through the things and then something else happens. Right. I mean, there's definitely times to have that conversation, but it's it's not when you're in the I don't know. <laughs> unless unless someone says, you know, you have three days, don't talk right. to me. So anyhow, so and I think the doctors are are also pretty good about instilling some of that real, some of that realism. Correct. So we had this ridiculous celebration and it was so fun. And, you know, so we went into but the, that week, so that was on Saturday and Dan's treatment days were Wednesday. So on Wednesday, Dan rang the bell and for a moment we were like, okay, we're done, which is the biggest lie that cancer tells you. Yes. Like cancer, cancer lies to you all the time, first of all. Um, but second of all, the biggest lie is that there's an end point. Yes. That the end of treatment marks the end of the experience. So Dan's immune system, like most chemo patients, was aggressively compromised. As a result, we dealt with so much stuff afterward. And he had this permanent compression fracture in his spine because once the chemo ate the tumor, the tumor had eroded the bone. 
So we had an option to consider spinal surgery, but at this Dan turned 29 in the middle of treatment. So we had this option to do this and we were not doing that. So Dan had, so he had this pain all the time and he was sick and he was dealing with parasitic infections. I pulled a hookworm out of his foot because that's what love is sometimes. And also so gross. Um, <laughs> but it happens like we had all these things. And, and so the thing is he just celebrated in, in February, we had the five-year remission mark and we celebrated the way that if you've been listening and paying attention, makes sense for us, which was we participated in a fundraiser for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society because we wanted to figure out how to convert this into something that helps other people. We struggle a lot still five years later with how we can pour into other people for the rest of our lives to match the magnitude of how people poured into us during this time, which of course it's not a contest and there's no scale of equity or any of that. But like Dan and I both, don't take lightly the amount of grace and kindness and love that was poured into us, even by strangers. And so we wanted to do that. So we decided to try and raise a little bit of money. We ultimately ended up raising over $13,000, which is amazing. But the deal was if we made it to $5,000, Dan was going to do a little performance as a drag queen because (laughs) our home loves drag. I speak professionally on authenticity. It's it's part of my keynote platform. Drag queens for me are the greatest representation of authenticity because it is this artistic ability to be the, the fullest version of yourself in these ways. And I love it. My kids love drag. Dan loves drag. We love taking our kids to drag queen um, story time and all these things. So I had a connection with the Denver drag scene. We live in Fort Collins. So I found a queen who would come do a makeover. So this was not me trying to make Dan look like a drag queen because I don't even know how to do my own makeup. (laughs) So I definitely can't do drag makeup, which is an incredible art. But Dan's drag makeover was this incredibly cathartic moment of joyful celebration that mirrored watching his face when 75 people from around the country said, holy shit, you did this thing when he walked in the door for that surprise party. So for me, that drag makeover and the ability to do it as a fundraiser and all that stuff mattered as well. But it was really like, how do we, these people who had costumes and themes and make me laugh text messages and farty dirt patch, what does a farty dirt patch family do to celebrate <laughs> five year mark? Can you please not call this episode Farty Dirt Patch? Because I feel like if people Google my name and Farty Dirt Patch comes up, I'm not sure they'll take me seriously or respect my fees. Um, <laughs> right? Like what doctorally educated person says Farty this many times in an hour? Um, but how does a family that constantly seeks to cultivate joy and pursues the opportunities to cultivate joy internally for our household and externally for the people around us. How do you mark these things that are our traumas? Dan's experience was a trauma. Your experience yeah. was a trauma. And, and so your and traumas impact you, but they don't have to own you. Yeah. And they're traumas that as we hit these milestones, sometimes the milestones are bittersweet. Yeah. Because I have a photo on my desk of a friend who was diagnosed a year after me, and she isn't here any longer. And and that can be challenging, too. Sure. So and it's important. That makes it even more important to celebrate the things and to celebrate the milestones because we are here. And we're here and to joy- live. Joining someone else's celebration rather than having an opinion about it or trying to control it is the greatest way that you can love a person who is living with the perpetual results of this type of trauma. If you cannot join in, that's okay, but you don't get to dictate why you can't join in. That's, that's irrelevant to that. Those people. We had people who said, we don't support drag. We think that this is something you shouldn't be doing. And I was like, cool, my husband's still alive and we do support drag. So this is what we're doing. Good on you. You don't have to donate money to our cause. I don't really care. 
Um, like, you know, your, your disappointment with how we are celebrating that marker means literally nothing to me. And if you don't know our family well enough, well, actually, no, if you can sit in your own disappointment comfortably, then you don't know our family well enough to understand why this has value, you know, and that's okay. It's cancer is an interesting time to help you figure out how to weed people out. It sure uh, is. Right? Like that's, that's part of it. Um, that is a very real part of it that well, it also really doesn't get talked about. Because we, we could probably do a whole episode on weeding people out. Um, we moved to Colorado less than a year after Dan finished treatment. And as we were driving away from St. Louis, I remember saying kind of jokingly, if it hadn't been for cancer, I would probably be more worried about how to maintain X number of relationships with people. But because of that experience, I probably have 50% less relationships to maintain. And that's okay with me. Those people will probably become Christmas card friends instead of call on my commute friends, you know, like there's, yeah, you, you learn and that's okay. Not everyone knows how to handle things or not everyone's depth of relationship is what you think. And, and so I don't fault anyone for, for how they handled exposure to our experience. Nobody owes me being able to support me. That's okay. Like, that's fine. Um, we were fortunate to have the kind of support that we need and, you know, knowing, thinking you have a list of a hundred middle of the night friends, and then learning you have a list of like 12 middle of the night friends is a really weird thing to go through. But I'll tell you what, those 12, hell yes. And the, and a few of those 12 weren't on your original 100. Isn't that wild? <laughs> and I definitely think this is a topic that we will need to revisit because, oh my gosh, the time goes so fast. Yeah. So, yeah. so fast. But well, yes. This has, been, this has been really great. I have a million other things I could talk about because I think there are so many pieces that people are waiting for someone to let them do yeah, or to remind them are okay. And I love telling people the things that are okay, because they're just desperately waiting for this, this permission to do a thing you don't actually need permission for. Yeah. And so I have a laundry list of those things that we could talk about. And one of them is letting go of relationships that no longer serve you or where you are in your life. And that's okay. Like you're allowed to do that. If it was a boyfriend, you would break up with them. But because it's not a boyfriend, you feel like you're supposed to hold on to that relationship. And that's really stupid. Don't do that. But you and I are in the extremely fortunate position of having spouses that we like. Oh, also true. (laughs) And that isn't always the case. I think that is one of the things that people do discover in this journey. Because I said at the outset, like, most of the time, the caregiver is the unsung hero. There are those few times where they're not. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But that's a topic for another day. Oh my gosh. Well, we have 13 topics to talk about with all of you. Basically, there will just be one whole season where it's you and me hanging out talking about all the things. But no, I I love this. If folks, especially in the caregiver role, just want to talk to a person in the caregiver role, I never won't have that conversation because I didn't know, I didn't really have anyone in my life who had served in that way. So I became the expert for other people. And I take that very seriously. So if you are listening and you or your significant other is serving in this caregiving role and you're like, I just want to talk to a person and say, I'm having this idea. Is it too far out of the box? First of all, I'll tell you, it's probably not. Second of all, (laughs) uh, but again, I threw a surprise party and made people snort laughing chemo. So like, who am I to judge? Right. Um, But second of all, it is a weirdly lonely and isolating thing when people are pouring into you constantly, but you still feel lost a little bit or, you know, in this tricky spot. So if you need a person to stand next to you in your tricky spot, please come find me on the socials. Um, and I will have those conversations and we will talk about the surprise party that you want to throw or the theme you want to have or the cupcakes you want to make because you think they're funny, or your version of Farty Dirt Patch. Some of you are listening right now and you're like, oh, Farty Dirt Patch. I don't have that one, but I do have this from Parks and Rec or whatever the show is. I want to hear your Farty Dirt Patch stories. I want to hear them because those are who you get to be and who you're choosing to be when cancer is trying to force you somewhere else. And so I want to honor all of those stories and I want to support you in whatever that looks like. That's that's what I hope um, you will come find me for because I'm happy to do it at any time. 
Well, thank you so much. And to piggyback on that, the same goes for people in the survivorship role. You know, the moment that we're diagnosed as a cancer patient, we become survivors. And I am also here to witness your stories and to support you in any way that you need, because so many crazy things happen that we think are only happening to us. And then we have conversations like this and we find out, oh my gosh, that happened to me. Yep. 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 I get it. So please come on over to Surviving is Just the Beginning, our Facebook group, and join the conversation. And you can check the show notes for Dr. Erica's social and connect with us here on the show. Thanks for listening and have a great week.